0: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, what's up everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimau of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers. Welcome to the Punk Rock NBA Podcast. What's up, everybody? I'm Finn McKenty. This is the Punk Rock NBA Podcast. Today's guest is Chase H. Mason from the band Gate Creeper. I like to use the middle initial because it sounds more official. Makes you sound like a notable author or something like that or a Supreme Court justice. They are a well, I guess they're not new at all uh, I'm just old so they've been around for 10 years they feel like a newer band to me but they're not they've been around for 10 years or close to it they're kind of to me one of the most interesting uh, and, and noteworthy bands doing the like old school death metal thing so if you're a fan of bands like you know, nails and blood incantation and stuff like that, then you might like them. But what I wanted to talk about with Chase is kind of two things. One, what does the business side of things look like for a band in a, you know, relatively small niche like this? He's a smart, thoughtful guy that knows exactly what he's doing. And so I kind of wanted to probe a little bit deeper on that. And second, something that he talks about quite a bit is sobriety. Uh, He was a heroin addict for years and he's been clean since basically the beginning of the band. Uh, And I think he has a lot of insightful things to say about that as far as like, you know, the culture of drug and alcohol use as it pertains to like, you know, music, does music, I don't know, encourage that if you want to get sober, you know, are people afraid of judgment or on the other hand, you know, if they want to start drinking again, are they afraid of judgment there too? What are some of the kind of interesting dynamics there? He's got a lot of thoughtful things to say about that. So we get into all of that. But before we get into that, I wanted to talk about our Patreon, because that is actually the thing that makes this show possible. That is how I pay Deanna, our producer and editor, who makes all this happen. I lose a lot of money on this show, to be completely honest. It costs me several thousand dollars a year to make this show. And it is because of patrons that I'm able to do that. So I'm trying to really level up the Patreon. So if you have any thoughts on what you would like to see there, whether you are a patron or not, I would love to hear them. As of now, patrons get every podcast a week early. I also do patron-only Q&A videos, so it's a chance for me to kind of give longer, more in-depth answers to questions on there than I can on my like YouTube comments videos or even here on this podcast. There's also a patron-only Discord server that I'm in all the time, just kind of chatting, shooting shit with people, talking about whatever. Really enjoy that community there as it's becoming more active. And also, there is a way to have me review your music, your video, your artwork, anything else that you might want me to take a listen or look at. So, if that sounds interesting to you, you can check out the Patreon at the link in the show notes. And again, thank you very much to everybody who is currently a supporter. But, First, before we get into that, let's do a little bit of Q&A. From Corey Young, After seeing your video about Corpse and Jaden, I'm honestly incredibly disappointed in the way the music industry has evolved. To each their own, but after grinding it out in rock bands in my younger days and instrumental bands within the last decade only to get nowhere, seeing that very convincing evidence has made me simply want to abandon the aspiration of being a professional musician. I get that the industry has changed, and kudos to those who have made it work for them, but after over 20 years of chasing this dream, I think the version of what I want has been overthrown. The question is, how would you overcome this overwhelming feeling to quit? How do you find a way to persevere? Well, here's what I think you need to do is you need to accept what things you can and cannot change and understand that everything is a choice. You've sort of told yourself that you can't or won't do the things that it takes to become successful with music, or I should say commercially successful with music these days, but that's a choice. So I would just sort of come to terms with that. Understand that like, if you don't wanna be on TikTok, if you don't wanna play, you know, you said you played instrumental music. So if you were choosing to play music that's not very accessible, and you're also choosing not to do things like promote it on social media. You know, you can't really be too surprised at the results you get, right? I mean, it's just like you said, it's not the same thing as in 2000. And by the way, the internet existed in 2000. Like, how many bands got big from MP3.com and, you know, then a couple years MySpace and stuff like that? Like, this is not a new thing at all. So I, I think you're right that there has been, you know, even more of a change in the past few years. But the importance of playing accessible music and promoting it on the internet is, is not a new thing at all. So the main thing that I think you need to do is just understand that it's a choice. You know, you are frustrated because you are choosing to do things that kind of basically don't work these days. And I don't mean to be rough. I don't mean to be harsh. It's just, I don't know what to tell you. You know, it's like someone who wants to be a professional basketball player, you know, saying, well, I don't like how three point shots are, uh, you know so important now and i don't like how like scientific the workouts are i just want to show up and play basketball and i like layups i don't like three pointers and you know you would just tell that person well i don't know what to tell you man i mean the way people train now has evolved and the game has evolved and if you don't want to play that way that's cool but you can't really you know be surprised at the results you're getting so you know i would just consider you know, the choices that you're making, or if you have already decided you don't want to do things that way, then yeah, you should quit. You know, like if you're, if, if you have sort of told yourself, if you've set these rigid constraints that I'm only going to make instrumental music or weird music, and I refuse to promote it online and blah, blah, blah. And you're not happy with the results you're getting, then you should quit because you know, You have said, this is my plan, and if you don't like the results, then that plan is clearly a failure. Or, on the other hand, you can change your plan. And we know that it is possible to have a career as a musician or creator doing all kinds of like niche, weird shit. I mean, Aaron Marshall from Intervals is a good example. He's been on this podcast. You know, his music, it's instrumental nerd music, and he does just fine. Or there's older people like, say, Jeff Loomis, who, you know, I don't even know what he does musically these days, but I know he does just fine for himself playing primarily just guitar music for other guitarists. So there is a way to do it. Uh, I think you just need to relax the constraints. You know, you're sort of you're setting yourself up for for failure. I think by being so rigid in your thinking, and you need to relax that. And whenever I've done this in the past, like saying I I'll never do this or I'll never do that or I don't want to do that, when I relax those constraints and kind of just you know let myself do something in a different way, and then I become successful with it, you know what? I feel a lot better. I'm like, wow. I don't know why I. Why, why was I making things so difficult for myself? Why didn't I just like loosen up and do things differently? So I don't know if any of that is helpful, but I think you basically have two choices. Either accept that, you know, you are not going to be successful doing things the way that you are right now and quit or do things differently. It's up to you. It's a choice. And with that out of the way, let's get into this episode. Chase H. Mason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I have to use the middle initial because that makes you sound more important. Yeah, exactly. And it also makes it sound like the liner notes to like an old death metal record, you know, when it would say, Chase H. Mason, lead vocals and harmonies. (laughs) Drums and percussion, as though there was like, you know, marimbas on there. Yeah. What's been keeping you busy lately? You're obviously, well, you've got your live stream coming up, not playing any other shows, but what's been keeping you busy lately?
1: I mean, over the past year, Wrote and recorded uh, the new record that we put out last last month. That kept me pretty busy, you know, writing and recording, but also afterwards, you know, getting everything planned. And, you know, the, the surprise release took a lot of uh, planning and scheming behind the scenes and, and getting everything in place so that it, it rolled out perfectly. But mostly just that kind of stuff, hanging out with my dog. I moved to s- central Phoenix um, for a long time. I was living in Tempe. Like most of my adult life, which is where ASU is,
0: that's a big party school, right? Yeah. So Tempe is that where like cool people live, or what's? Break it down for me. I don't know anything about Arizona.
1: So Tempe, it's it's technically it's still part of Phoenix, like a the Phoenix metropolitan area you would call it. Um, so it's not like one of those college towns that's completely separate. Right. It's just a part of of Phoenix, but it is a a big party school, I guess, and. When I was younger, you know, from 18 to through my 20s, it was definitely where people like artistic people lived or, you know, a lot of college towns are that way, you know, like it it attracts creative types, whether they went to this school or not. But I think that over the past five years, at least they've kind of gentrified uh the place not that it was it was ever ungentrified yeah but they're they've just started building a lot of of the new like modern luxury living condos and everything like that around they're trying to attract people with money to send their kids to the school
0: right do they have a big uh, international student uh, body there or no yeah they do so it's you get all the the rich kids from abroad to go live in the fancy apartments and pay 130 grand a year to go asu
1: yeah, exactly. It's kind of pushed the creative and artist types out. Um, and now everybody's kind of settling back into central Phoenix, where as for a long time, it wasn't cool to live in central Phoenix. And now it is again.
0: Now you're pushing out all the people <laughs> who used to be able to afford to live there. Exactly. The circle of gentrification goes on. Yeah. Cool. Well, I, I've never, I've I, you know, I went to the Grand Canyon. That's the only thing I've ever done in Arizona. Uh, I just think of a lot of uh, cactuses, and I imagine that everybody there that's into music plays uh, like stoner rock.
1: Maybe at at one time that might have been more true, but... um,
0: I'm I'm wildly stereotyping here.
1: (laughs) I guess it's the desert rock tag or genre that actually doesn't even have anything to do with Arizona. I can see the confusion.
0: Well, so (laughs) it, it feels like 2020 was a super good year or in early 2021. Feels like the past year has been super good for you guys, kind of like a breakout year. Am I am I imagining things or did that happen?
1: I mean, it's hard to tell because I mean, considering 2020, we weren't really able to do anything. I think that we were lucky to have our breakout in the years prior because we just put out our, our second full length deserted on on relapse in October of 2019.
0: Oh, I didn't realize it was that recent.
1: Yeah. So it came out at the the end of 2019. We were only able to do one tour on that record. So 2020 was supposed to be the year that we, we toured a lot on that, you know, our, our big record. So I'm fortunate that we did, we were able to get that record out before, you know, everything shut down because I know that bands if, 2020 was legitimately supposed to be their breakout year. You know, they were putting out their first full length or whatever. I don't know if they'll be able to 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 maximize it without being able to tour or anything behind it. So to answer your question, I think that we broke out prior to, uh, and I'm thankful for that because I don't know. I think that'd be kind of hard for a band like us to actually break out in 2020 or even 2021.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially in your genre, the new school, old school death metal touring, you know, playing shows is such a big part of it, as opposed to you know some other genres that exist more on the internet.
1: Yeah, you know, the genre specific stuff is is pretty important. It's, you know, even considering our our surprise release, because you know, like rap or or pop artists, they drop surprise albums all the time, right? I and mean, it, it doesn't matter, but. I think that the genre or the world that we exist in is important considering how everybody releases records, because, you know, most of those rap or pop artists who are releasing surprise stuff, they're not really putting out a physical product with right. it as well. That's true. Like they're not, they're not releasing vinyl or CDs right. or, or whatever it is. So it's a lot easier to make us to, to right. do a surprise drop.
0: And they don't have the inventory risk of having, you know, thousands of unsold records or whatever.
1: Yeah, there's that part of it and also just the manufacturing it makes it a lot, right. hard. you know, you got to wait at least 4 months or something to even get vinyl pressed. So
0: And I guess for in your genre, do you feel like it wouldn't work to do just like a digital only surprise release?
1: I don't think so. I don't think that it would have the potency. I think you'd get the initial pop and people would yeah. be talking about it, but I think people would forget out. I mean, people are just going to forget about it soon anyway, just because that's how we all everybody rolls. But I think at least having a physical product, it it prolongs the, uh, the exposure to it. I think.
0: Tell me about that. Why do you think that in your scene, physical product is so important?
1: I think it goes back to like a little bit of tradition and metal and punk and everything that's always been about t-shirts and and records consumerism yeah records collecting and yeah it's consumerism but it's veiled in this weird (laughs) you know because it's like oh we're not collecting you know for me my personal it's like i'm not buying all kinds of uh expensive designer clothes but i'm buying i have like a hundred, dollar t-shirts you know yeah band t-shirts or or you're buying like Vintage whatever T-shirts on eBay or whatever it is for two hundred dollars.
0: Your hundred eighty dollar blue grape obituary shirt.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it definitely is consumerism, and I think that there's just an, like an appreciation for, especially in in our world and my own personal preferences, where we're referencing a lot of older stuff. You know, like late eighties, yeah. early nineties stuff, where there was a lot more physical, whether it was physical media like records or tapes or cds but also just like flyers you know like those band promos or anything that's like a physical thing that you could get your hands on i think that that's making a comeback along with the the retro music or everything else
0: well you guys did such a good job speaking of flyers the flyer for your um live stream which is that like today or tomorrow when is that it's tomorrow tomorrow the flyer for that is perfect like it takes me right back i remember like the Earate grind crusher tour in like 1990 or whatever when i was like a little kid seeing that flyer and just thinking it was so like spooky and it was like man i want to go to that but it looks really scary <laughs> who knows what's going to be there and it's really hard to capture that vibe actually you know and i think you guys do such a good job of that
1: well thank you because um that's something that i I care about a lot and I do a lot of it myself like if you see here I uh, I have a xerox machine uh, oh, in my okay. office uh-huh I think a lot of that stuff I you know I've always learned I've been self-taught whether it's for music or for graphic design and it's kind of just by dissecting the stuff that I like yeah so a lot of this stuff again that we're referencing whether it's like old zine looks or like death metal demos you know they all yeah. have that look and yeah how you do that is use what they used to use, which is a Xerox machine. It's you know? so
0: funny to me how people like make it more complicated than it needs to be. Like at this tech company I worked at before they wanted this particular, you know, piece of art to look like it was, you know, sort of a, a naive hand drawn pencil thing. And this girl was spending like all this time trying to do it in Photoshop. And uh, I was like, Hey, why don't you actually just get a pencil and draw it? <laughs> and she was like, Oh, I mean, yeah. Oh yeah. I, I could do that. You know, it's like, it's weird to me that people don't just do what you said. It's like, well, how did they make this in the first place? Why don't I try it that way?
1: Yeah, I, ha- I had a similar a breakthrough, I guess, when, you know, when I started the band, I knew exactly what I wanted th- everything to look like. And it was look exactly like the stuff that I liked, you know, um, like Slayer mag and any of yeah. that, you know, it just has a certain look to it that I, I wanted to replicate, you know, for the lack of a a better term, but, um, I was trying to do it in Photoshop. I was like trying with different techniques or filters or like masks or whatever texture layers, and you can get kind of close. But then I, I started commissioning people that I found, whether it was like at the time, like on Tumblr or whatever that were doing stuff that I liked, I didn't understand how they were doing it, but I liked what it was. And I eventually became friends with a guy named Dean and I commissioned him to do a tape layout for us for like a, a tour tape. And he he kind of dragged me along, you know, through text, his whole process. He's like, all right, here's what I'm doing. And then I'm going to go to Staples. And then I'm going to go, I'm going to Xerox it. And then I'm going to scan it back in. So I'm going to show you what it looks like before I do that. And I was like, oh, okay, that's how you do it. And he kind of gave me the whole recipe. It's almost like deep frying a meme or something, you know?
0: (laughs) Right, right.
1: So he gave me the whole recipe and then I just took it from there. And I was like, all right, I'm just going to do it. I still commission a lot of stuff like shirt designs or whatever, but I I like to handle it a lot of it myself just because I I think that I figured out how to do it right.
0: When I get the chance to... Commission someone who I'm a fan of like I really enjoy that for example I got Michael Chance to do like my cartoon monster shirt because he's one of the people that really pioneered that style He did a lot of the early artwork for all Sykes' brand, brand uh, drop dead back in the day mm-hmm. And I was really excited to be able to like pay him to make a shirt for me because I'm just like a fan of his work Do you kind of have that same? like dynamic of being excited to work with these people or for you is it like oh, I'll only outsource it to someone else if I can't do it myself
1: no I love outsourcing stuff whether it's like album covers or sh- merch designs because I'm always looking for for new artists or whatever it is like because I'm interested in it so I, I you know follow them on Instagram or whatever and I'm always on the hunt not only because I'm interested in their in the art or the design of it but I'm also aware of how important it is for our band to like have cool merch designs or whatever mm-hmm. it is. So I I do really love commissioning whether it's someone that I already know, like another artist, like you said that you've followed for a long time, or finding someone new, because it's one of the aspects of playing in a band besides the music, where it's like you're basically collabing with somebody. Yeah, you know, like let's yeah. let's work together for you know instead of in another type of music or whatever you can collab with someone like if you're a SoundCloud rapper you can co- collab with someone else and you do a track together right that's not really how it works in our world but it's almost it's the equivalent of that like hey i like your art um, right. hopefully you you like my band let's let's work together and you know make something cool
0: you obviously put a lot of you know effort and attention into the aesthetic side of the band how important do you think that is? Because, like, to me, by the way, I told you this, uh, you know, on Instagram. But I want to tell everybody here: I fucking love the new album. Like, it's one of the best things I've heard in a long time. And I, I'm not easily impressed by, you know, death metal because I've been listening to it for 30 years, <laughs> and I really, I think it's fucking awesome. You guys also nailed the aesthetics. And I wonder if I heard that same album, but it had like shitty Photoshop artwork. I wonder if that would change how I hear it. What do you think?
1: I think it's huge. You know, like, and I think that it's very important, the whole picture. You know, obviously you need to start out with good songs, good music or, you know, good musicianship or whatever it is, good production. But as far as a record or just a band as a whole, like, I think that really focusing on the big picture is super important. And I think that that's where a lot of bands, like it's a misstep for a lot of bands where you have a really good record or uh, really good songs. And then the album art is terrible or your merch designs are terrible or whatever. Like it seems very shallow to think about it that way because when people are just like, Oh, it's, it's all about the art, the music, but.
0: But I don't, I don't think it's shallow at all. Like people, like you're saying, like the music is one part of the experience, but it's not the only thing. And like we all look back to these you know experiences we had looking at some you know album some lp back in the day and geeking out like me and the accused you know i loved that their artwork is so detailed you could spend like an hour just looking at all those little details like you know i don't think there's a dichotomy between having cool aesthetics and having like integrity with your music those two things work together to me yeah i mean i I agree. It's weird to me that people would like feel that there's something wrong with like putting effort into the aesthetic. You know what I mean? Yeah. But there is some of that.
1: There is, and also as far as merch stuff, people will in our world or whatever will be like, oh, they're a merch band. You know, like they have right, they have right. twenty shirt designs, and it's like, yeah, of course we do. Number one, because I I like doing this stuff. I like having cool merch designs, and also like that's where we make
0: our money. Sure, I mean streaming. You know, you guys you guys are one of the bigger bands in your genre, I think. And I looked earlier; you have seventy seven thousand monthly Spotify listeners, which is that's you're not making a lot of money on that. Yeah. So it's got to come from somewhere. Yeah. And it's like, oh, Spotify is bad, but selling merch is bad. Yeah. Charging
1: for a live stream is also bad.
0: Right. It's like, <laughs> dude, what do you, what am I supposed to do? You know? And then the same people are the ones that cry about supporting, oh, you got to support the artist. It's tough.
1: Yeah. You were talking about the album art, like how it used to be. Back in the day, it was like important when people were flipping through records or whatever, to have something sure. that would stand out. I think it's the same idea now, whether it's people are just scrolling through social media, scrolling Mm -hmm. through Instagram, where if you don't have something that pops out to them or or looks cool, or I mean, doesn't even have to be super unique, but just something that will stop someone for one second to to look at it or click on a link. I think that's super important. So I think those fundamentals um, have transcended from the analog to the digital world, those same principles.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the sort of need for content at scale now is a big difference. You know, whereas before, like, you know, you've got the blessed or the sick poster behind you. They could milk that for that image on t-shirts and posters and whatnot for probably years. But now people just the the volume of imagery that people see, it's like you kind of have to have 20 shirts just because people are going to get sick of seeing the first two. So quickly, and if it's not new, you know they're going to forget about it, and move on to this something else that's new. Because people just are so overstimulated now. Yep. Like even if even if you only wanted to have two shirts, I think that would just be a, a bad idea because people would get over it and they would forget you exist.
1: Even for our live stream that we're doing, like I've made like two or three different flyers for it just because, you know, again, it's specifically right now in this instance, it's like it exists only online. Right, you know, like It's not even like we're print, it's going to be a flyer that's printed up and I'm stapling it to a, a light pole or something. It's only going to be posted. And once I post it once, it's like, all right, is it going to be lame if I post the exact same thing three days later? Right. I'm like, I'll just make a different flyer or, you know, at least change the colors of it or whatever, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, even just a simple thing like changing, you know, as though it was photocopied on different color paper, you know, could make a difference. Yeah. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. Well, tell me a little bit about your scene because I'm uh, I'm, I'm not super in touch with it uh, these days. Is the new school, old school death metal scene? Is it mostly like metal people, or is it people who came over from hardcore, or what? What is kind of the nature of that?
1: I think it's both. Um, I mean, I'm I'm older now. I guess you know I'm, I'm 33, about to be 34. So it's hard to say like where kids that are 10 years younger than me, who, are, who aren't even kids, you know?
0: Yeah, young adults.
1: Yeah, it's hard to see where they came from. You know, like I, I know the the routes that me and my peers or generations got into this sort of music, but who knows, you know, like it, I'm not sure where they came from.
0: Well, if someone's 23, they didn't grow up listening to incantation.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, but even for me, I didn't either. You know, like a lot of the the classic records that I that we uh, jock or whatever you want to call, it, or like came out when we were kids. You know, yeah, I wasn't listening to death metal when I was in kindergarten in nineteen ninety two. You know,
0: <laughs> I won't tell anyone. Don't worry, the secret <laughs> is safe with me.
1: You know, there is that group of people who are into hardcore, and then they transitioned. Yeah into metal or death metal or whatever especially in the past couple of years um, cuz i think that the old new old school death metal thing has been around for a long time like i was joking yeah. or i was joking around with you about cuz even in the 2011 when you you know coined the entombed core it was s- starting to have like a little bit of phase but i you know cuz i know that's how i got into that sort of stuff and it was even earlier than that like yeah. with uh bloodbath right i would say right. they were they were one of the first modern bands at the time that were like, Oh, we play old school death metal, you know? Right. And then there was death breath, which, um, I was really into. So I think those were the first two bands. And that was like in like 2006 or something, you know? Mm-hmm. So we're like 15 years out now from this, right. but in the last couple years,
0: but those, they were death metal guys though, right? Yeah. They weren't hardcore guys. No, no, no. So yeah, the
1: entomb core, I would say, uh, I know that in your video, you mentioned Nails as that's what you, who you put as the...
0: I know they weren't the first, you know, like yeah. Trap Them and All Pigs yeah. Must Die and stuff were, we're doing it earlier, but mm-hmm. I think Nails was the one that made everyone kind of made it blow up, I think.
1: Yeah, Trap Them for sure. And I think another one that was big as far as the crossover between hardcore and old school death metal was Black Breath. Yeah. So I think that that was the original like... Like you said, like hardcore dudes find uh, HM2 pedals or whatever because those were legitimately that. You know, Todd used to play in hardcore bands. The guys yeah. from Black Breath used to play in um, hardcore bands.
0: It's amazing to me that like most Nails fans don't know that he was, you know, a founding member of Terror. Yeah. Like he was in Terror? What?
1: Yeah. So there, so there is a lot of that. In, a, in the most recent years, it's the old school death metal thing has been getting a lot of attention, but then, then that draws the like detractors or I guess like the haters on it where it's even more so like, Oh, that's, these are hardcore kids. They just heard a bolt thrower yesterday. You know, right. that's sort of classic uh, dismissal. Yeah. I think that there's a lot of just core metal people, you know, like say, cause you know, we put out records on relapse and I would say that right. is like the straight just core metal or core death metal audience and yeah. they're into that stuff too so i think it spans a couple different like subgenres. but i think that as far as in underground metal or death metal is concerned that style has definitely like become in vogue or whatever you'd want to call it
0: well it's appealing to me because i really did get kind of turned off by the you know the the 2000s death metal that just got so sterile and clean and stuff to some extent i can appreciate it but to me if it's got to be it's got to be ridiculously sterile and clean like say uh decrepit birth or Arc spire. Mm-hmm. like it's got to be either that which is just like inhumanly crazy perfect mm-hmm. or it's got to be like really grimy and filthy but if it's just kind of in the middle mm-hmm. if it's just sort of unremarkable death metal with really like clean sterile production it just doesn't really do anything for me at all and so that's why i do find the old school death metal stuff appealing cuz it just kind of you know it, it when it's too clean it's not threatening to me you know what i mean yeah
1: no i agree and i think that that's what caused the like resurgence of like the the fundamentalists you know, or like the revivalist of uh, there had to be some sort of breaking point where it's like, all right, whatever's happened, whatever this is turned into, we're not about it. Like we're going to do it the old way or whatever. Yeah. But I, you know, I, w- I was getting into death metal and stuff in the, in the mid two thousands. And like when I was a teenager, you know, like black Dahlia murder or whatever right. was a, a good entryway for me. Because you know I was young, and I remember seeing like uh, one of their vi- videos from Unhollowed like on Headbangers Ball, the Josta Headbangers Ball, yep. And then finding bands that Trevor had, would name drop because I remember reading an interview with him in Revolver, and it, they did this like artist on artist interview series, and he interviewed Jeff Walker, I think, from mm-hmm. Carcass. So it just like would find Carcass, and then he would, you know, a lot of those. You, like uh melodic death metal type bands in 2000 so i like heard at the gate slaughter of the soul right and then i just kind of like continued digging from there
0: it's interesting to me that incantation seems to be kind of the reference point for you know most of the bands doing old school death metal mm-hmm. um not so much you guys but that seems to be the band that a lot of people are referencing now um what do you think it is about that band that is you know kind of capturing everyone's attention?
1: Incantation, like when I was first getting into old school death metal, I didn't at first latch on to incantation because it was way too like chromatic. I definitely was drawn to the Swedish stuff just because it was catchier and it was a little bit um, more accessible to me at the time, at least what I was listening to beforehand. And but once I had had gotten pretty deep into death metal, I finally something clicked, and incantation really was really appealing to me and then like immolation and and stuff like that, which it's, if you know your death metal and you do, it's like, it's way more, it's not melodic at all. It's very dense. It's very murky. Dissonant. Yeah.
0: Sludgy. And
1: so I think that there's definitely a certain sub sub genre of the incantation style bands. And I think that there's because all of this stuff that we're doing is all referential you know so i think right. that you can trace it back just very you can put it in different categories like this is the old school death metal bands that love incantation
0: the incantation core entombed core yeah yeah i'm curious why the new york death metal seems to not really have well, I, those are New York bands, but New York death metal is slamming or kind like mm. internal bleeding and pyrexia and early suffocation. Why that doesn't seem to have a lot of currency these days? Yeah, I feel like it
1: used to. I, I remember because I would listen to them and I would download all of them, but all yeah. like the suffo- suffocation clones, right? You know, like yeah, I feel I like there was a. Lo- I feel like there was a lot of them.
0: There was f- a fucking unbelievable amount of them, and all the the Texas version of it that was maybe even a little bit more like groovy.
1: Yeah but you're right like that doesn't really even though they were in the same time frame bands that were doing that aren't really considered old school death metal you know right which is weird and, and
0: i and they were that stuff was way more popular than incantation was back then yeah and maybe that's why
1: i think what the answer to that is is because those suffocation influence bands or like the internal bleeding like pyrexia influence bands that was kind of absorbed by deathcore Right. You know, and right. that within death metal deathcore is a bad word. You know, it's a it's a, it's a naughty thing.
0: I'm told that gatecreeper is a bad word now. Is that true? Depends on who you ask, you know. <laughs> Cuz I I said, you know, I posted it, I said, well, I really like this album, but I'm ashamed that I like something that is going to end up on elitist's top 10 list and a bunch of people are like, "Oh no, they hate gatecreeper now. You're good." Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the same
1: as anything in a in an underground or subculture thing once you get some sort of success or popularity then those people want to hate on you
0: right right well what can you do yeah <laughs> another thing if you don't mind me asking about it that you talk about quite a bit is sobriety mm-hmm. you've been uh sober for uh how many years now
1: eight years eight and a half.
0: Eight years okay so you you're you're seems like this is a permanent thing then
1: yeah, I mean, I would hope so, but
0: well, you know, if it's eight, if it's eight months, you you know, relapses happen. Yeah, you know, people people have slips; it's part of the process. But if you made it eight years, and you're probably in good shape. Yeah, is that hard to do within the scene with so much? I mean, I feel like alcohol, in particular, is such a big part of the metal scene, mm-hmm. and for some people to be around that, that's difficult. Like my mom, really, she was you know she was an A, and she did not like being around alcohol at all. Is that a challenge for you or no?
1: Not really. Um, I mean, number one, alcohol was never really my thing. Like, I got into, like, hard drugs super young.
0: Gotcha. Okay, I I thought it was alcohol.
1: No, so heroin was my thing. Got it. But I got into that stuff when I was, you know, I started doing that when I was 16. So... By the time I was 21, I didn't have like a normal bar alcohol experience. You know, I was already I was already on to other things, you know,
0: you were nodding out at the bus stop. Yeah,
1: exactly. (laughs) Number one, alcohol is not really my big thing. So I'm not really like triggered by it, you know. Right. But I do recognize that I miss out on some some social interaction, you know, like on, on tour, say not even. Just being at the classic show experience, but just within band, and I say we're touring on a touring package and it's to other bands, it's very classic, like, hey, let's have a beer together. And that's how you right. grow down, you know, you have a couple of drinks together. So I understand that that's, I'm missing out on the, the social interaction that, that involves alcohol, but it's, it's not, it hasn't really been an issue. Like most of the time, you know, first meeting someone and they're like, hey, we buy you a beer or, let's have a drink. And I just tell them, you know, I'm sober and ever, I've never had someone be disrespectful about it. And they're just like, Oh, that's cool. Okay.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of people who are maybe considering, you know, who are are thinking about stopping drinking are afraid that that's going to happen or that they're going to say they don't drink and people are going to judge them or that it's going to be weird. And uh, to those people, I would say it's not going to be weird. Just, you don't even have to tell them you're sober. You can just say, uh, you know what, I'll have a Diet Coke. Yeah. And they'll just be like,
1: okay. I oftentimes find the most awkward experience is when someone else makes it weird. Like, oh, is it cool if I drink in front of you? Or if like, I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm like hanging out with a new friend or like with a girl or something. And they're like, oh, is it cool if it, like, if not, it's totally fine. But like, right, is it right. cool if I have a drink? I'm like, yeah, I don't care. Like, yeah. I appreciate you asking. But yeah. You know, I, I think an important thing is like, I didn't stop doing that stuff because I didn't like it. I stopped it because I liked it too much.
0: Right, so, right. so it's
1: not like I'm going to judge you, like, ew, you're drinking and just because yeah. I'm sober now.
0: Yeah. I, th- I think people do have that kind of fear that if someone's sober, that they're judgmental. And, you know, I guess that does sometimes happen, but I think that's pretty rare. Like sober people are not judging you. They're doing it, like you said, for their own good, not because they look down on you. Mm
1: -hmm. So you you said that uh, your mom was in AA, is that what you said? Yeah. And I know that you've talked about your, like, substance abuse stuff. Yeah. Did you ever do, like... Twelve step programs, or have to go to treatment or anything, or you just kind of handled it your own way. No,
0: not I went with her a bunch when I was Mm -hmm. a kid, so I'm very familiar with very familiar with it. You know, Mm because I spent lots of times in church basements, you know, with her at AA and Al-Anon and ACOA and every fucking every twelve step program you could think of. I probably went to some of those meetings when I was a kid, so I'm super familiar with that. Mm -hmm. Um, I I would say I didn't have a a drug problem. I had a life problem. Where I used drugs to just sort of mask the life problem. And then once I took care of the underlying issues in my life, like that I had a horrible job that I hated and a very unhealthy relationship, once I took care of those things, I didn't want to use, I didn't want to drink or do drugs anymore. Like, if I wanted to do drugs right now, I would. Yeah. I just don't want to. It's the opposite of people like, oh, I could quit anytime if I wanted to. I just don't want to quit. It's like the opposite of that. I could start anytime I wanted to. I just don't want to start. Yeah. Like I asked my dad once who was like very hardcore. Like he was like shooting speed balls in his neck level of like drug use, you know? Respect. <laughs> yeah. He <laughs> he went there, you know, free basing and the whole nine yards. And I was like, you know, were you, uh, were you a junkie? And he thought about it and he was like, I wasn't a drug addict. I just used a lot of drugs because he quit as soon as he wanted to. Also, you Mm -hmm. know, he's like, yeah, all right, I should probably be done with this. And then he quit. Yeah. I I suppose to some extent that's just semantics, but I do think it's a meaningful difference in that for people like him and me, fortunately, it's not difficult to quit Mm. as compared to other people, you know, like my, my stepsister died of an OD. I don't remember if it was like Percocet or one of those kind of things. It like, fucked up her liver cause you know, they have Tylenol in them mm-hmm. and she was taking too many. And my dad told her like, if you don't stop, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. And then she kept going and she died. She couldn't stop even though she knew the consequences. Yeah. So to me, that's kind of the difference is like, you know, are you able to stop when you know that you should is a meaningful difference to me.
1: Yeah. Everybody handles things differently. Everyone has different life experiences and like, you know, I've, I had to, It took me a long time. Like I, there was several years of me kind of bouncing back and forth where it was like, I know that I need to stop because my life is, I can't hold a job. Like I'm, I'm basically homeless. I am homeless. I'm not living on the streets, but I'm just like bouncing around different friends' houses or whatever. And I know what my problem is, but oftentimes it's mixed with like what you said, like life, life problems where you are the, you are the problem. It's not the drugs. Yeah, or both. For me, like I went to a couple of different treatments and I ended up the last time um, in like a six-month treatment program and they have you do AA and, and 12-step programs. And I never fully like sipped the Kool-Aid on all that stuff, yeah. but I definitely needed the treatment just for the fact that I needed to just be put away for a, an extended period of time to just remove myself and like kind of get my, get my feet on the ground before I went back to trying to live a normal life.
0: That's kind of how I feel about 12 steps is like, I don't, you know, there's a lot of stuff there. Like I don't believe in God, for example. And I think some of the stuff is kind of weird. Like I forget which step it is where you call and make amends. Yeah. And like you call somebody that you haven't talked to in 10 years and like, Hey man, I'm really sorry about the time I did blah, blah, blah. And they're like, Oh uh, yeah, it's cool. I actually didn't even remember that that happened. (laughs) You didn't need to do this. It's weird. Yeah. You know, it works for some people and it would save my mom's life. But I think there's the point is, I think you can still learn a lot from just even going halfway. Like the first couple steps I think are, you know, super valuable for anybody regardless, like not even about substance abuse, just about like life in general, Mm -hmm. you know, that you have to admit you have a problem and you have to admit that it's gotten out of control. Yeah. And whether that is like anger or, or food or whatever the fuck it is like just those two things right there are more than most people are able to do that's tough
1: yeah i th- i think it's important like you said that you can just kind of take the pieces that work for you and cuz i i i know that i when i first went to a aa meeting then they started talking about god i was like oh no i'm out peace and out I, and, I <laughs> back, and i didn't go back and i didn't go back but There is pieces like I I am not super active in AA at all. I've gone through the steps with a sponsor like maybe
0: once ever. Right.
1: And you're supposed to, you know, if you're a super active member, you're continuously doing it and then you go through it with sponsees or whatever.
0: My mom sponsored people for like 20 years.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not super in the actual like 12 step AA program, but I'll still go to an AA meeting and not in the past year because they haven't been happening, but there's been, there's an AA meeting that's just, it's a men only meeting that some of my other friends go to. And I would just go every week. And even if I wasn't super active in the program, just going to that meeting and like, just seeing my friends. And it was a little bit grounding of being like, it was a weekly reminder, like, okay, this, even though I'm, I'm very removed from it at this point, but this is still a part of my life that i still have to like continue to work on so i i used to kind of beat myself up about it or get shamed kind of or have some outside pressure that i wasn't doing it the right way like oh you you need to get a sponsor you need to you know work the steps
0: there is a little bit of that in the 12-step programs of like the people that are like the real true believers that kind of want to force you to do it their way yeah in a dogmatic way. And it's like, dude, this is about me, not you. And if it's working for me, fuck off. Yeah. Like, you know, and I totally respect the people who, you know, practice it, the, the 12 steps by the book. Like if that works for you, that's great. But when they turn that into like kind of forcing it on other people, that's, you know, that's dysfunctional too. Yeah, I agree. Have you seen that uh, Instagram page, the sober memes page?
1: No, I think I follow one called dank recovery.
0: <laughs> okay, I'll check that one out you know there's like the the overnight sober guy that you know gets super intense about 12 step stuff and it's you know those people are hard to handle too but still i'd prefer that they channel their addict energy uh into that than you know than drugs i guess but it really is interesting that like that addict energy doesn't go away it's usually still there at least for a while and it just gets channeled into other places yeah i find that interesting to see like the people who get super into like fitness and you know stuff like that
1: yeah i mean i've talked about it before but that's what i did i just put it into i started Gay Creeper at, right after i got sober and i just put my my junkie energy into that you know and it was just start instead of waking up every morning and being like how am i going to get money how am i going to you know, whatever.
0: It is amazing how hard junkies work.
1: <laughs> it's it's literally like it's it's the most extreme full-time job you could ever have.
0: Yeah, it's like, man, like, you know, if you have a bad habit, especially if it's like something, I mean, I, I don't know what pills cost these days, but uh, last I checked, they're pretty expensive. Mm-hmm. And like coming up with a 100 bucks a day or something like that for your pill habit when you're homeless, like, that's a hustle.
1: yeah. <laughs> There's definitely a a junkie hustle, and I know that when I was doing that shit, I had my hustles that I had to do, and my friends had their hustles that they had to do, and everybody. It's like a weird, it's a weird ecosystem of everybody like has their own little, their own their own junkie superpower of how they get money every day. (laughs) What What was yours? I was a classic middleman, you know, like I I was selling drugs, but it was like I basically was just ripping off other people that I knew that needed to get drugs, and I was the middleman. like, all right give me $40 and then I'm going to buy 20 for myself and 20 for you. And that's how I did it every day for the long time.
0: Well, I'm glad you never, uh, well, I assume you never got any legal trouble for that. I didn't, thankfully. Yeah, that's that's good. Otherwise you might be, I know Arizona, they're not too kind. So you could end up in uh tent city. Fucking, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think that they actually shut it down, but yeah, I, I luckily didn't have to go there I didn't get any legal trouble. And also I think it's because I didn't get my driver's license until after I got sober. So I wasn't on the road, you know, I wasn't getting right, pulled right, over. Right. So I'm super lucky that, uh, I didn't have any sort of police interactions or any sort of, um, I don't know. I just, I, I got super lucky.
0: Yeah. I can think of a lot of times where, you know, I was driving around with something I shouldn't have on me. And in hindsight, I'm like, what in the fuck were you thinking? Like, Are you high? And the answer is yes.
1: (laughs) Because I I guess what I was trying to say with with the not driving part, because not only when you're on the road, you have way more chances, uh, way higher chances of getting pulled over, having sort of police interaction, but also you're driving and you're on drugs or you're intoxicated. So like there's a chance that you could kill yourself or somebody else just by driving. So
0: Or hit a parked car. And, you know, that's the start of. God knows what. Yeah. But do, do you have any issue or I guess what are your thoughts on the extent to which like alcohol is glorified in, I think in particular in metal, there's so many songs, you know, beer, beer, beer. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I think it's kind of lame, I guess, especially now that I don't drink and I talked about like the social interactions that I am aware of that I'm missing. I think that drinking is you know without talking shit but i think that drinking is like the lowest common denominator bonding experience that you can have it's kind of like having a sports team where you're like oh you're an eagles fan i'm an eagles fan you don't have to have anything else in common it's it's even lower than that the the standards are even lower than that it's like you drink beer i drink beer now (laughs) we're friends you know so i i don't know if if it's because I don't drink anymore or whatever it is, but I think that that's like it's a very low bar for any sort of bonding.
0: I, yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't I hadn't thought of it that way. And you also find out when you don't drink, you find out how many people you thought were your friends, but were really just people who happen to drink in the same places as you. Yeah. And when you're not drinking, they really couldn't care less what you're doing. Yeah. You know, my concern is that. Nobody gets into like metal and hardcore and stuff because, you know, they're a totally healthy person, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of people who are using alcohol in unhealthy ways. And I'm not judging anyone. Like, if you want to, you know, if you want to drink, that's up to you. But there are a lot of people who are using it in ways that are, you know, destructive and unhealthy for them, like a lot. And I wonder how many of them you know, feel like they can't quit because of those reasons, you know, because the, they worry that they won't have any friends anymore or they worry they won't fit in or whatever it is like they feel unconscious or, or unintended peer pressure to keep drinking. And it's such a large number of people that I wonder, I, I feel like it's a real problem and that every fucking metal record, you know, it's like if you're not drinking, if you're not doing the same stuff as the people in the band, you're not cool. And everybody and everybody in every band is drinking.
1: Yeah. I, I think, I think that over the past 10 years or whatever, I think that the, the alcohol glorification stuff is not really in style, I guess you could say, because you know, like the, the eighties thrash or whatever, that was very much like alcoholica and and whatever and like songs about drinking beer. And then I remember in the early mid two thousands, you remember like Jägermeister we used right. to sponsor everything. Like I don't see that as much, if any, anymore. Now it's energy drinks or whatever it is. That's true. Or Scion or whatever.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah. Gee, I wonder why Scion <laughs> went out of business if their big promotional activity sponsoring ringworm shows. <laughs> I mean, I love ringworm, but yeah, you know that's probably not the best market.
1: That was an interesting era of uh punk and metal
0: ringworm and Gehenna shows. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but to answer your question, I think that it's um, it is a valid concern where people think that they're going to be left out if they're not partying or drinking, or if, especially if they've established their own brand as being like the party guy. Right. Right. So I, I almost have concerns the other way around. And it's just like these weird, these thoughts that are, I think that there may maybe like, whatever you call it, where like risk management or uh-huh. just like building me some sort of exit plan, you know, that how we do have always like, somehow if I need a way out, this is how I'm out. Yeah. I am I wonder like, what if I start drinking again or say I want to start smoking weed or something, but I've established this whole thing right, where right, I'm a right. sober guy, you know, like, is everybody going to be pissed off or whatever it That's is, true. you know, like. They probably I, would be. Yeah. I'm like, maybe I shouldn't like talk about it so much just so. I do if I choose that I want to maybe I'll I'll be able to do that but I think that's just weird addict whatever behavior ways of thinking
0: Well I think you should just start drinking non-alcoholic beer <laughs> but don't tell everyone that it's non-alcoholic so you know, you've you've sort of de-risked your life by removing the sober guy part of your brand, but you're still actually sober. So now you have a both you have the best of both worlds.
1: Yeah, actually, you know, uh, I know that you had you've talked about liquid death on your thing. Yeah, I re- remember when the liquid death stuff first started coming around and they sponsored this fest that we played in Tucson and they were giving them out. And it was the, the you know, it's a white can white yeah. tall can with like gold lettering. Yeah. And I was walking around with it and people, especially because it was dark, people thought I was drinking like a Modelo like, or something. What are you doing? Yeah, exactly. They're like, whoa, what are you drinking? I'm like, it's cool. It's liquid death. On the other side, it, it made me feel pretty cool. Like I look like I was just hanging with the dudes drinking a beer, you know?
0: That's right. Yeah, that's cover. true. I've heard about people getting uh, pulled over uh, for drinking. I'm like in the car on the way to work. <laughs> they get pulled over because they thought it was a beer. So uh, good marketing on their part. <laughs>
1: it doesn't happen with Red Bull, the, the the can's too small.
0: Yeah, now they know. Cool. Well, I won't keep you too much longer. I know you got uh, a lot of stuff going on. But uh, before I do, any uh, parting words of wisdom or, uh, you know, life advice you want to offer the kids, even though probably everyone listening is in their 30s? Yeah,
1: not really. I mean, I think that uh, if people are following your channel or whatever, I think that they're in tune to like being a little bit grounded and having a, a good perspective on things. Cause I know that, you know, I've watched your videos for a long time or whatever. And like, whether it's music business stuff or like positive mental attitude stuff, I think that uh, people who are probably listening to this already are, are on the same page. So, but I want to thank you for having me on.
0: Cool. Well, I appreciate it.
1: I also want to tell the fans uh, I wanted to tell the fans how long I've been, uh, how long I've been a, a, a Sergeant T fan.
0: How long is that?
1: Whenever Metal Inquisition was, was that like 2007?
0: Oh, shit. Yeah, 2008. Wow. Yeah.
1: Because I I was in that world of like the blog spot stuff. Like I had one of those download blogs, the Mediafire Uh download blogs.
0: Oh, I love that era. That's like Slayer Mag to me. Yeah, exactly.
1: You got got the Cosmic Curse and all that good stuff. Yeah. But I think somehow I I landed on it from there. Even though it wasn't, a Metal Inquisition wasn't a download blog, it was in that world. So I've been following ever since. So
0: Wow amazing that's like yeah that's wild.
1: if anybody wants to cred check me
0: that's right <laughs> cool well i appreciate it and uh hopefully we'll get to hang out next time uh, i'm in arizona or you're in seattle yeah cool man thank you for having me all right my friends that does it for this episode of the podcast if you made it this far thank you thank you for listening we sincerely appreciate each and every one of you if you want to help the show there's a couple things that you can do first of all share it on social media if you share it tag us tag
1: purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down
0: the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of too much F.E. perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead.
1: And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11.